Amen. Let's, what's up, bro? How's it going? Good to see you, man. Let's make our way to our seats so we can get started, my friends. Praise the Lord. Let's make our way back to our seats. All righty. Everybody okay? What's going on, guys? It was several years ago, Jessica and I, my now wife, but at this moment in time that I'm referring to, we were only dating. I was, we were both students at Sam Houston State University. She caught my eye and we started to date. I started to pursue her and um, we, we were totally like falling in love with each other. It was pretty awesome. Right. So I remember it's funny how when you start getting into relationships and especially when you get into marriage, the most difficult thing is communication. It's always a thing that gets people into trouble. And so we had when we were dating, we had a big miscommunication, you see. So we were hanging out in her apartment and I was asking her, okay, so I'm a little bit older than Jess, okay? So I'm basically preparing to become a missionary, and I'm asking Jessica, hey, so let's kind of chat a little bit about the future. And she's like, okay. And I was like, when do you graduate again? And we kind of started talking timelines and things like that. And she says, uh, well, um, remember, I'm going to, and we had this conversation, I have to admit, we probably had this conversation several times prior to this, but I needed a reminding. And so I'm asking her, when do you graduate? And she says, basically, uh, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but just for the sake of story, she was saying, um, basically, uh, like the May of 2014, um, around that time is when I graduate. And I started doing the math, and all of a sudden, I got really mad. Why did I get really mad? Because I thought she was going to graduate six months sooner. And the fact that she was then telling me, no, I'm getting, I'm graduating this, at this date, I immediately got angry and said, I have to wait six more months to marry you? <laughs> I did not want to wait. I was ready to get married, but we had this plan and there was going to be absolutely impossible to do so until she graduated. And I remember we kind of got in like our first fight. I was like, what? What do you mean? You said this. And she's like, no, what did I do? I'm telling you, we had, I said this before, but I mixed up all the dates in my head. And I remember being absolutely tortured because when you are in love, you just want to get to the wedding day. I just wanted to marry her. I couldn't wait for the days to go by. But the Lord was teaching me something very harsh. And that thing is this, patience. The funny thing about this is patience sometimes feels like punishment, but it's not. I felt like the reason I got angry because I felt like I was being punished but it wasn't punishment at all. It's just life that you have to figure out together. There are moments in life, guys, where you may feel like you're being punished. But sometimes the Lord is just asking us 
to be patient. I remember getting super frustrated and having to calm myself down going, okay, I think I can wait six more months. It was like, at that point, it was like a year and then and added six months. I was like, no, and I was so, but praise the Lord, we made it through the year and six months. It was not the worst thing in the world. Patience does not ever ruin your character. You hear me? Patience will always help your character. And then, praise the Lord, we got married, and now we have a baby. So it all worked out in the end. Now, in previous weeks, guys, we talked, we opened up about the gospel. We talked about the what of the gospel, what the gospel is. We also, last week, talked about why. Why did Jesus come, and why did he do what he did? And today, we're going to spend a little time asking the question, how do we surrender to that Jesus? How do we give ourselves fully over to Jesus. This morning, this morning, wow, where am I? Tonight, we're going to be in John 15. If you have your Bibles, feel free, open them with us to John chapter 15. I've also got that on the screen for you if you want to follow along. John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. You guys ready? It's going to be good, I pray, tonight. Okay. Chapter 15, verse 12. This is what Jesus says. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead... I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you, Lord, to speak to us, to help us, to challenge us, and to move us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Jesus is at the end of his journey on earth, and he's meeting with his disciples, and he gives them, his disciples, gigantic Mount Everest-sized principles to live by. In fact, these are words that no one had ever heard anyone speak before. But Jesus gives them these magnificent challenges. He says, I command you, love one another. That's pretty cool. That's the instructions of the Most High God. Is not, he didn't say, conquer all your enemies. He said, love each other as I have loved you. This is a, these are the type of foundational statements that we are to build our lives upon. When Jesus speaks these things, these are life-shattering truths that will change your life if you take them to heart. Amen? He says, I've chose you. You did not choose me. It's a gigantic foundational statement. And he says then also to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. But the thing that I find most shocking is that Jesus had the audacity to describe us with this particular word, friend. 
How on earth does the God of the universe, when speaking to his creation, who spits in his face, who sins against him, who scourges against him, who curses him, he turns to his disciples and say, I no longer call you servants. I call you friend. I hope in Chi Alpha you experience the marvelous gift of friendship because there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like your friends being there for you when you go through rough times, right? There's nothing like it. And friends that love Jesus are friends are going to love and serve you really, really well, right? Why on earth is God using this word friend? God could, so here's the thing, is that God created what we call a personal universe, The universe and everything in the world and everything around us, he created it to be personal. God does not desire to have a bunch of robots that just follow him around and do everything he says. If he wanted that, he wouldn't have said friend. You see, he wants a real friendship with you. What this means is that the world is basically founded on this statement. This is what we say all the time in Chi Alpha, that rules without relationship always lead to rebellion. You see, if God only has a bunch of robots, if there's actually no real relationship here, then it, there's nothing actually real to cling on to. It's, and, and what we see in Jesus' words is this principle that rules without relationship always lead to rebellion. This is the difficult thing that parents, whenever we become parents, we must learn as we raise our children that you can raise your children with a whole list of rules, but if you have no relationship with them, It always leads to rebellion. Some of you might be thinking about your own childhood. You might be thinking of your own life and wondering, Lord, I never had a real relationship with my father. I never had a deep relationship with my mother. And a lot of these things start to come together and make sense. But I'm here to tell you that God, the God of the universe, what he desires over everything else is relationship. It's a friendship now, where did this begin? The, this, what God has founded us on a universe of person, a personal nature, this begins all the way at the beginning. So we see this in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, where everything in the garden was beautiful all the time. It was perfect. It, there, there's Adam and Eve, and there, there's this unselfish love they have for one another. They're walking in the garden, enjoying the presence of God. It's in, probably impossible for us to imagine the beauty of a world that does not have sin in it. That's the world they lived in. But then, as we read, is that sin entered the world. Adam and Eve sinned. And technically, Lucifer, the devil, sinned before they did. He was kicked out of heaven because of his sin. But man and women, we sinned, and they sinned in the garden. And so basically, how did they sin? How did they reject God? The devil, when he slithered around on the earth, and he does the same thing today, what he basically established is he established his own law apart from God's law. You see, God's law is a law that's based on love and trust. But the devil, he didn't like that. And so what he did, and and the devil was very clever in how he set this up, is he said, basically, my law, says the devil, is going to be basically this, me first. That's the law of the devil. 
me first. That's how he has authored his law. And this is what he did that was clever. Is he says, basically, not everyone that just joins my side and worships me as the devil, they're going to be on my team. No, the devil was more clever than that. He basically, with his actions, he says this, anyone that lives with the attitude of me first, they are going to be on my side. Anyone that lives with the attitude of me first, that is being obedient to the law of the devil. Whereas God, he establishes his law on something completely different. He establishes law on love and trust. Fast forward a few thousand years. You have Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Now, this is very interesting. I want you to follow along with me here because... At this moment in time, it's as though the people of God, Israel, his chosen nation, they have forgotten what God is actually like. You see, we tend to lose the word of God in our hearts. And the same thing happened with Israel. So Moses is coming down the mountain, and he's got these things called the Ten Commandments. You guys have heard of the Ten Commandments before. You might not even be a Christian, and you probably could quote the Ten Commandments. But what's the deal here? What's God getting after with the Ten Commandments? Here's just a few. I'm not going to go over all of them. But you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Ten Commandments. So here, remember, God's law is not based on um, judgment and Oppression, his law is based on love and trust. So what happens when Moses gives the Ten Commandments? Guys, it's, it was a blessing and a wonderful thing to receive the Ten Commandments from God. But you have to think about this. It almost was an insult. Because look, what the Ten Commandments basically is, is reminding you, hey, if you want to be my friend and you come over to my house, don't rob me. Now, you would think that that would be common sense, but it was no longer common sense. God had to literally remind his people and us what it actually is like just to be a friend again. The Ten Commandments are not an oppressive set of rules on your life to rob you of your joy. You see, the Ten Commandments are not these oppressive boundaries that God places on our lives to take away your fun. They are actually a top ten rule list to be friends with God again. He's saying, look, Israel, if you're going to actually love me, don't cheat on me. You see, friendship has parameters. Friendship has rules. Love and trust demands certain boundaries, right? When you get married and you say those wonderful words, for better or for worse, through sickness and in health forever and ever, I promise myself to you. You know what you're saying is you're saying I'm going to continually choose you regardless of how I feel in the moment. That means anyone that might come in the room that's smarter than you, that's more handsome or prettier than you, that's more impressive, that makes more money, whatever that might be. What love is, is it's not this thing that's not just merely a feeling, but it's a thing that says, because you are the only person who happens to be you, I'm going to choose you every single day, regardless of how I feel. What that says is, I will refuse all other lovers in the universe and choose you. 
This is what God has done to us. And this is what naturally friendship should be, is that we do the same thing back to him. Do you see this? The ten, this is what the Ten Commandments is all about. It's a top ten rules to be friends with God again. You see, it almost feels like punishment, but it's not. It's actually a blessing. It feels like a curse because whenever we're full of sin, we're like, oh, this oppression, oh, I don't like this. But it's actually a blessing because he's giving you breadcrumb trails. If you want to be friends with me, this is how you do it. This is how you enter again in my presence. Are we good? Is this making sense? God's law automatically reveals purpose. What do I mean by that? A lot of times what we do is we have these plans for our lives and we say, God, here's the plan I have for my life. Please bless it. (laughs) Right? Lord, here's my plan. I want this type of car. I want this type of salary. And I want this type of spouse. um, And uh, she's got to cook for me three times a day, every single day with a wonderful attitude. And, and I want three and a half kids. Lord, here's my plan. (laughs) And here's Here's what I want to explain to us is the difference between what I want versus what God wants. Proverbs 19 says this, many are the plans in a person's heart, but is the Lord's purpose that prevails. I've got a slide up here that will illustrate this. Basically, these circles represent everything on the left there is everything that you want. That re- that's a symbol. Everything in that circle is everything that you want. This is what my small group leader taught me, and I'm going to pass it down to you. That's what you want. And then on the right, you have another circle that represents everything that God wants. Now, this is the Christian pathway. You figure out and discover who Jesus is, that he's the Lord of heaven and earth, that he's the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And you realize, oh my goodness, Jesus, the differences between what you want and what I want are quite different. But as you begin to walk with Jesus, you start to see these circles move closer together. Now, in the next slide, you'll see this here. As you get closer to the heart of God, your wants and desires start to overlap with God's wants and desires. Now, pay attention to this. You see that middle area on our Venn diagram there? You see that little section? Do you know what that's called? That is the beautiful world that we call answered prayers. Because when you start actually praying in a way where you're asking for God's will to be done over your will to be done, when you're asking and praying God's desires over your life versus your own desires, that's when you start to see God really move in your life. That's what answered prayer is all about, is you are finally laying down the things that you want, and you start praying the things God wants over your life. And that is a dream come true, a relationship with God where you serve and love and honor him, where you have, where it says, the Bible says that a prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Because you start cooperating with God and you stop praying your own selfish desires, you actually start changing your desires to be more in line with God. I believe some of us here in this room might feel stuck 
and might be thinking to yourself, I don't really remember the last time God even answered a prayer of mine. May I challenge you? What is it that you're asking for? Don't get me wrong. There are moments in life where we persevere through prayer. Also, don't get me wrong. Sometimes the Lord answers your prayers by saying no. Have you given God authority to tell you no? Do we believe that God wants what's best for us? Because God saying no, it feels like it's a curse, you see. It feels like it's a burden. It feels like, gosh, I got to wait six more months to marry this girl. I hate this. But it's actually a blessing. Because you pick up character along the way. Are y'all with me tonight? Is this good? Let's let C.S. Lewis wrap this idea perfectly around this one point. This is what he says. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking down the house in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out the new wing here, putting on a new extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. You know what surrender to Christ looks like, friends? It's completely allowing God to remake you into something else. You don't invite Jesus into your life to make you better. As the famous, I actually don't know, it's escaping me who said this, but I'll quote him. Jesus did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. He's here to make new wine out of you guys. He's here to make you new. He's here to make you a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He's not an update to your software. He's a total renovation of everything in your life. Have you embraced and accepted the desires of God overwhelming your desires? Because that's when you find true joy. It might, listen to me, it might feel like punishment, but it's not. It might feel like a curse, but it's not. It's the molding of your spirit into something better. Have you given him that authority to make you into a new creation? Now, at the beginning, I said, we're going to answer this question, how? How, Daniel? How do I do this? How do I actually give him everything? A college student went up to a small group leader, a friend of mine, and they had a good relationship, good small group, good healthy small group, good healthy friendship, hung out all the time. This, this was a church kid, and he started to get really frustrated because his small group leader was excessively happy and full of joy. And when your life sucks... <laughs> People who are full of joy kind of offend you, right? 
<laughs> I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> you should have listened the first time. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. This college student comes up to a small group leader and says, I don't understand. I've been walking with Jesus my whole life, but I've never had the kind of joy that you have. Never had the freedom that you show every single day. What am I doing wrong, small group leader? This is how he responded. Because the difference between you and me is this. While you have accepted Jesus into your life so that he can serve you, I've surrendered my life to Jesus so that I may serve him. Yeah? Are we okay? You want to hear that again? All right. He says this. While while you have accepted Jesus into your life so that he can serve you, I've surrendered myself to Jesus. I've surrendered myself to him so that I can serve him. Guys, this is the secret to joy. You just pick up God's plan and you lay down your small broken agenda and then you have joy because those circles perfectly start to align together. And your prayers start to become powerful and effective because you are beginning to cooperate with God. Guys, what I'm talking about here is there's a difference between being really committed and actual surrender. There's a huge difference. You see, commitment is good. Don't mishear me. Commitment isn't a cuss word. I'm not saying we should not be committed. You should absolutely, but the, but when it comes to walking with God, commitment is very different from surrender, which is the real goal. You see, commitment is serving really well in Chi Alpha, but you see commitment to a ministry, although that's great, your commitment to your small group, your commitment to Chi Alpha, that's awesome. But if you never learn surrender to Christ, you're walk with Jesus will only go so far as Chi Alpha can carry you. And and the moment you graduate, you're going to, so this is what you're going to experience. If you're only merely committed and you're not surrendered to Jesus, you're going to go in Chi Alpha. It's going to feel like this. And then you're going to graduate. And all of a sudden this is going to happen. And you're going to go, what on earth happened? And then these attitudes start creeping up. And you're going to say, my Chi Alpha friends never call me again. And they're actually jerks the whole time. They've forgotten about me. But the problem is, is you should have learned surrender. You should, you should have learned to surrender to Jesus. You should have caught, you should have gotten on that train because when you're surrendered to Jesus, it doesn't matter, matter what ministry you're a part of. It doesn't matter how many times you play in the worship band. It doesn't matter how many times you lead small group. When Chi Alpha leaves and you graduate and you move away and have a career and get a family and have lots of kids, you're still going to be held strong because you're surrendered to the King of Kings and he doesn't leave you. Commitment will only take you as far as your church can carry you. But surrender to Jesus will carry you all the way to old age, and you'll be like those beautiful, precious saints of God who are on their deathbed singing praises to the King of Kings. That's how I want to go out. How about you? Commitment will bring you great success in ministry. Commitment will bring you great success in ministry. But surrender to Christ stores up treasures in heaven and protects you from depending on the world for your reward rather than God. Commitment helps you follow Jesus up until you encounter your first real obstacle. Commitment will do the job 
until you reach your first obstacle. But surrender to Jesus throws you at the feet of him who fills you with the Holy Spirit, empowers you to overcome any challenge you face without becoming prideful. Basically, any obstacle you face, you're going to be fine because you know you have God. Now, I'm not saying the rest of your life's going to be easy all the time. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the rest of your life, you're going to have this magical thing that only God can give, hope. You'll always have hope if you're surrendered. Commitment's only going to go so far. What we need is absolute surrender. When This is a quote from G.D. Watson, a wonderful author. He says, when the soul seeks nothing in the universe but the smile of God and fears nothing in the universe but offending him, it will gladly consent to pay any price to get perfectly right with him. How often do you think about the smile of God? Lord Jesus, help me bring a smile to your face today. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Thank you for this wonderful day. Show me how I can bring you a smile today. You see, when you begin to surrender to Jesus and you move past this earthly thing called commitment, which is good, but it's not going to save you. When you move all the way into absolute surrender to Jesus, you start realizing that the boundaries that God places in your life, that they're not actual punishments, that they're actually blessings. Jesus explains this surrender perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Does he not? Jesus is there in the garden. As the Bible describes that he is enduring the crushing wine press experience of his life. He, the Bible says he's sweating drops of blood, that he's overwhelmed to, the, to the, his utter limits, pressing in because the realization of the crucifixion was at hand. This is right moments before he was uh, arrested and betrayed. There is possibly no better illustration of absolute surrender than reading through the book of Job. When you read and investigate this magnificent story in the book of Job, basically, let me summarize very briefly, is he, he's going through in, in immense, incredible, overwhelming suffering. He's crying out to God and wondering, why is this thing happening to me? But Job did not know that previously that there was this meeting that the devil had with God up in the clouds. Job wasn't there. He wasn't informed. It, You see, we're on a need-to-know basis sometimes, and sometimes we don't need to know everything. We just have to trust God. But there was this amazing thing that happened before where the devil challenges God. I bet your servant would curse you if you take away all of his stuff. And the Lord's like, all right, I'll test you on this. Try me. And then Job passes that test with flying colors because he's a a surrendered man to the Lord. So as the story continues, I highly – this is a wonderful book basically right in the middle of the Bible before the book of Psalms. This is, this is uh, called poetic scripture. This is poetic uh, um, manuscripts and that we read in the Bible. So it's, it's like le- reading a lot of beautiful poetry. 
but there's this wrestling with these ideas of human suffering. Job and all of his friends, they come over and basically start ridiculing and say, Job, you must have sinned somewhere. You're probably a jerk. You're just not admitting it. You need to humble yourself. And that's basically the book of Job is these arguments between him and his friends. And at the end, God speaks out and it's this beautiful thing, but I'll let you read it on your own. Job says this wonderful thing in chapter 13. And this is one I want to focus on as we close. Job chapter 13, verse 15. Job says these, this miraculous, magnificent statement of absolute surrender. He says, God, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely, and he bas- this is him arguing. This is Job wrestling, right, in his pain and in his suffering. He goes, I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him. He's saying, I know I haven't sinned and God's going to protect me. But focus on this verse. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. There is no better example of perfect surrender. And Job says this, and Job, we admire him, but he doesn't handle himself 100% perfectly. And as you read Job, you'll see that and how God rebukes him. But... What we have here is a beautiful example of how we take a scripture from the Old Testament. And I'm telling you right now, you read through the Old Testament, you get confused. What you need to practice doing is constantly looking for Jesus in every single page in the Bible. Tell me, friends, who on this earth can say this statement better than Job? But Jesus, the Son of God. See, Jesus was betrayed by one of his best friends. He was mocked, scourged, beaten to an inch of his life. And you have Jesus in the garden, and then he's arrested. He's every, his, everything seems to be falling apart. It seems as though Jesus is being punished by God. In fact, that's precisely what the Pharisees accused him of. They said, look... People who are crucified, they are a curse of God. Look at this man who is accursed. He calls himself the son of God, but look, he's a curse. They accuse Jesus of being a false teacher, but Jesus allows himself to be crucified, allows himself, though he could absolutely have taken himself off that cross. On the cross, what Jesus does is he shows absolute, perfect, and total surrender to the Father. Because Jesus is the true one who can say, though he slay me, I will still trust in my heavenly Father. Though my Father has placed me on this cross, this is what Jesus is saying with his attitude and his godly character. Saying, though my Father has attached me to this cross, though I am beaten, though I am scourged, though I am being crucified and slain before all to see... I know that my father has a great purpose for this. This is absolute surrender. To say, Lord, whatever may come my way, whatever things happen to me that seem like punishment, I will not doubt you, not even for a second, because I know that you're a good father. And Jesus, at the worst moment of moments on that cross, being crucified, he says, I know with his character and never doubting his father for a second, he says, I know this is for a good reason. 
And he says this in the garden when he says, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will be done. That, my friends, is absolute surrender. J1, you can return at this time. We're going to close. Guys, you know what friendship, you know what surrender really is? What surrendering to God actually is? It's friendship with God. It's simply learning how to be friends with God again. And walking in those loving boundaries that keep you from destruction, despair, and suffering. And added needless suffering. So let's answer this question. How, Lord, how do we totally surrender to Jesus? Jesus said these magnificent words. He says, guys, look, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. You understand Jesus had the authority to use any other word he wanted. Jesus could have said, I no longer call you servants. I call you worms. I no longer call you servants. You're maggots and you're awful to me. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. You are the scum that's at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. He could have said that and he would have been accurate. But you see, Jesus is after something else. What is he after, Chi Alpha RGB? He's not just after your robotic obedience. He's after your heart. He wants your heart. You know how to give him your heart? We'd be a good friend to God. Amen? He says, I've called you friends. Let's stand tonight. God is not merely interested in your servitude. He's after your heart. Jesus wants a friendship with you. How do we give ourselves to being friends with God? Well, whenever we, whenever you ask the Lord something and you're seeking him with your whole heart and you're throwing your prayers at the feet of Jesus, rec- this is how to be a good friend to God recognizes sometimes he says no when he says no that means you have no business to when he closes a door you have no business to drop kick that door open and say no I'm going to go through this door anyways that you see that's not being a friend that's imposing your plan over God's and that's failing to surrender You see, being a good friend of God means anytime you have a major life decision to make, you're just not going to assume anything, and you're going to ask him first. Lord, this is a wonderful and a wise prayer, guys, and I encourage every person here to make this a part of your prayers. Say this, Lord, should I actually date this person? 
because I can rescue you from many stupid relationships. Believe me, I've learned from experience. But do you ask the Lord his opinion before you insert his opinion on your life that you think? This is how you can be a good friend of God. You simply go to him about things in your life and you seek his opinion over yours. It's refusing to kick your own doors open and waiting on the Lord to open the doors for you. It's saying, yes, Lord, regardless of what his answer may be. Every head bowed, every eye closed tonight. Holy Spirit, we want to be better friends of God. Jesus, this is how we surrender. We submit to being friends with you again. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want to ask, if you're in this room and you say, Daniel, I know that I have not been a good friend to God, and I need prayer tonight. If, if God's stirring your heart and you're, you're knowing tonight, I, you're saying, Daniel, I need a change. I've got to have a breakthrough. I've got to have a change, and that change needs to happen tonight. If you'd be bold and say, I, I need to be a better friend to Jesus, you're talking about me right now. Would you just raise your hand right where you are? Raise your hand up high. This is merely a confession. Say, Lord, I want to be a better friend to you. I want to be a better friend to you, Jesus. I see your hands all around. This is what we're going to do, friends. You can put your hands down. What we're going to do is what's called an altar call. And altar calls are wonderful. What this is, is a chance for you personally to respond to the Holy Spirit pressing on your heart. What we're going to do is we're going to invite you, anyone that wants to, to come down to the front Make your way to the side stairs or make your way to the top if you need a private moment. We're going to worship and we want to invite you to seek the Lord and pray that over your life and just say, Jesus, help me to be a better friend to you. Now, I know I realize probably a lot of church kids are in this room and you're thinking, well, Daniel, I get, usually in my church and you go to the front, it means you got to get saved all over again. This is the way we do this in Chi Alpha. When you come to the altar, that means you simply want to be closer to Jesus. It means you simply want to seek his presence. Maybe someone may have to get saved all over again. I don't know. I don't know everybody here. Who cares? Everybody in this room is screwed up. Don't think about the person next to you. You respond to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Can we do that tonight? I'm going to pray over us. And when I say amen, that's the password that means you come to the front and let's kneel and get before God and give him everything in all of ourselves. Amen. Jesus, I ask you, Lord, would you help us be a friend to you? Lord, the first step back towards you when we've sinned against you are these two simple little words. God, I'm sorry. And I pray courage over everyone in this room that there would be repentance, that there would be a willingness and a bravery to say, God, I'm sorry. I've been a bad friend to you. Holy Spirit, will you reveal to me how I can be a better friend to you, Jesus? That's what I want. Because you made that possible through your 
crucifixion and death and resurrection on the cross. Jesus, I ask all of these things, Lord, that you would give courage and there would be transformed lives tonight because we're finally, finally seeking you and your desires rather than inserting our own desires over you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God's spoken to you. You need time with the Lord? Come on up to the front. This is a time where you get to respond to Jesus. Make your way if you need to make your seats an altar time. Let's honor the Lord and give him this time.